Hey everybody, welcome back to Bus Call. We're back from hiatus and I want to thank everybody for sticking around. We've got a lot of cool interviews and a few surprises coming up in the next few weeks, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and get notifications on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. This next interview is with Sturgill Simpson's front house engineer, Steve Smith. I know the audio quality isn't that great. I did this in a hotel room in New Orleans with minimal equipment, so I just want to address that before I get all the comments about how bad it sounds. Anyway, thanks for listening and here's the podcast. After about an hour down the road, the driver said, all of a sudden, he's seeing, you know, flashing lights behind him in a state police car. So he pulls over, and the policeman comes up to the driver window and says, I believe you've lost something. And the driver's <laughs> like, well, what do you mean? And so he goes back and gets the drummer, who's still stumbling drunk, and uh, walks him up, opens, you know, the passenger door and puts him on the bus and waves us on. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Bus Call, the podcast dedicated to the touring industry professionals and their stories. My name is Ryan Goldbacher and I'm going to be your host. In these interviews, we're going to break down how touring professionals got into the industry, advice they have for up-and-comers, and awesome stories from the road. For more info, visit us at show-logistics.com and click on the Bus Call podcast at the top of the page. Hi everybody, I want to welcome my good buddy Steve Smith to Bus Call. Steve and I met about 10 years ago when I was working for us. Jennings. Um, we also re-met about five years ago or so, uh, kind of forgot we knew each other, we're uh, giving each other blank stares like where the hell do I know that dude from, <laughs> and eventually we figured it out, <laughs> but uh, Steve's worked for a, a million artists, uh, the list he gave me is too long to name them all, but the highlights are uh, Libby Newton-John, Shooter Jennings, who we both worked with, uh, Stiff Little Fingers, who we both worked with, and currently he does front of house for Sturgill Simpson. Anyway, Steve, welcome to Boss Call. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going great. Good to talk to you. How did it all start for you? What got you into the music business, and what led you to the position you're in now with Sturgill Simpson? Basically, when I was in high school, I got interested in recording, mainly to do like radio shows and skit comedy and stuff like that. And so I bought a four-track recorder and kind of learned how to overdub a little bit and kind of got my toes in um, audio just a bit. And then when I got to college, I met a lot of uh, musicians and whatnot. And just, you know, one thing led to another. And I ended up just kind of doing sound with like really rudimentary little mixers and crappy PAs and all that stuff. And then just gradually kept getting better gigs as I learned more of how to do things. And um, started working with sound companies and stuff in the 70s. And then with sound companies, you work festivals, and a lot of times, especially with artists that don't have a monitor engineer, the, the sound company tech will do the monitors for the bands. And so after a few years of doing that, I just I got hired um, by a touring act to go on the road as a monitor guy. And from there, it just kind of, again, gradually improved until I got here. And did you start out doing like van tours and, and stuff like that, or did you kind of jump into oh, the oh, bus? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. I did decades of of riding around in a van and doing frat parties and tiny clubs and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, fortunately, all different kinds of music. So I, I really got exposed to a lot of diverse instrumentation and and all that stuff, which I think has really helped me, you know, to this day. Well, yeah, I mean, you've you've worked with everybody from Olivia Newton-John to Shooter to uh, a lot of guys stick in one one vein for their whole um, for their whole 
career, but you've you've jumped around a lot. I mean, you've worked with punk rock bands and yeah. In the late seventies, I worked with a band that was a early world music kind of a, a project. So they had you know all different kinds of African and Indian instruments, and so I learned a lot about miking unusual instruments and just how to mic things and how to mix things in general. And then, you know, like you said, I've worked with metal bands. I've worked with bluegrass bands. You know, I've, I've done all kinds of stuff. Um, I generally like kind of high energy music the best, but I also, I've worked, you know, like you said, uh, with people like Olivia Newton-John and Nancy Griffith, which was very much more of smooth, melodic, you know, kind of a sit down and, at a symphony hall kind of music. What was your first, you know, real bus tour? I was working at, for a, a Chicago-based uh, regional sound company, and we did the Lake County Fair, which was a pretty big event in that area. And um, one of the acts was the Marshall Tucker Band. And the, the, the band's crew were, you know, pretty rock and roll guys. This was, you know, the 70s. And so they basically, as a little young system tech, kind of dogged me around all day and just w- kind of went out of their way to make life harder for me than it possibly could have needed to be. <laughs> and I, you know, I just took it and, and, you know, did everything I could, did everything the way they asked. If they asked me to do something over because they changed their mind, I didn't bitch or any of that. And at the end of the night, after their show, the crew guys told me they wanted me to come on the bus. And, and when they did, the tour manager said that um, they would love to hire me and take me on the road. You know, your actions speak louder than, than you know, your resume, always. Especially living on a bus, you know, it, it's close quarters and sometimes it can be real stressful. So, you know, if someone can count on you to have a good attitude and just do what you can to make the best of anything then, you know, it makes you a good guy to be on the road with. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's just part of learning how to do stuff, too. You just you just make shit happen, and if you can do that, people are going to notice, and they're going to say, hey, you know, that guy didn't complain once. He just did what we said. Bam, let's give him a gig. Hey, everybody, if you're liking the podcast, do us a favor and head over to show-logistics.com. They were selling some T-shirts, hats, mugs, all kinds of stuff like that, and we're changing it up all the time, so every time you go there, there might be something new that you could get. So please, again, check us out at show-logistics.com. If you buy something there, you're supporting the podcast, and you're keeping us going. You know, we met uh, when I was tour managing Shooter Jennings. You subbed in on a couple gigs that I couldn't do, um, so we, we really barely just crossed paths doing that. But what's the story behind getting the Shooter gig? Because you were, I believe you did front of house right before I did, or maybe John Lozier did, but you were one of the engineers before I was. Uh, John Lozier um, was a good friend of mine from uh, working for a Nashville regional sound company. He's a very known, successful engineer at this point. But back then, you know, I, I had just told him we were both working for a sound company, and I said, you know, if you really want to get somewhere, you just need to find a band and ride around in a van with them playing in clubs and making crappy PAs sound as good as you possibly can for a few years. That'll do you more good than loading and unloading sound company trucks. And so he took it to heart, and he his first uh, van and trailer gig he got was Shooter Jennings. And so uh, after a few years of doing that, um, he had gotten an offer to go to work for Olivia Newton-John, so he asked me if I could cover a bunch of Shooter dates for him. and. Um, so I went out and did like a six or eight week tour with Shooter, 
and Shooter and I hit it off great. He's one of the coolest guys in the world. And, um, and you know, we toured. Uh, it was on a his Black Ribbons album, which was for a son of Waylon Jennings to put out a kind of Nine Inch Nails, Soundgarden meets Pink Floyd record. It was, you know, kind of difficult. So after that, he took uh, maybe a year, two years off. And then when he started doing club dates again with a more country mainstream format is when I think you got the tour manager sound guy gig. Yeah, so and then, you know, we crossed paths. And then uh, years later, I was uh, working for a, a mutual friend of ours uh, who owns a, a sound company in Nashville. And yeah, he's relocating to a new warehouse. Yeah, yeah. and we, <laughs> you just kind of stopped by. And I'm like up on a ladder or something, putting stuff on a shelf. I think Mike said, hey, this is Steve. And I was like, man, I know this guy. We just kind of both kept giving each other sideways glances. And I think like two, three days later, maybe a week later, we realized <laughs> where we actually met the first time. Yeah, if I if I would have ran into you at a gig, we probably, both of us, would have gone, oh, hey, what's happening, you know? But when when you're in a, in a context, you know, the, the, out of your normal where you would expect to run into somebody, it's kind of hard to place them. You know, well, one one gig that we've kind of traded off a couple times is uh, has been uh, Stiff Little Fingers. I mean, you worked with them f- from what two thousand until twenty seventeen, and did all their U.S. stuff that entire time. Is that right? Yeah, I've, I've done a few European tours with them as well, but for the most part, I just do the U.S. stuff just because of travel expenses and visa headaches and all that stuff. But uh, I've been working with them. I started in two thousand. This time last year, I was finishing up an eight-week tour with them. With that gig, I had, again, another just random chance. Um, I was working with an 80s band from Chicago, and we got a chance to do a tour as a support act for Uriah Heat. Their bass tech and stage manager was also uh, the tour manager for this Irish punk band called Stiff Little Fingers. And so when they had a U.S. tour, uh, he called me up and asked me if I would be able to do the audio for it so they wouldn't have to have the expense of bringing their normal U.K. guy over to the U.S. And I said, you know, I'd love to. It'd be great. So um, from that, you know, it's like, again, we hit it off just fine. Touring with them, especially back, you know, 20 years ago, was quite an adventure because they were... They they lived up to the to the Irish punk band, you know, ethos perfectly. Um, one of the, one of the first gigs I did with them, um, the morning after a show, I left my hotel room to go and meet the bus and all that kind of stuff. And the guitar player was in the hallway of the hotel, passed out on his phone, where he'd you know gotten you know after last call at the bar, I got up to talk to his girlfriend and was talking in the hallway because that time we shared rooms. He didn't want to bother his roommate. So he was talking to his girlfriend until he blacked out. <laughs> so I had to wake him up. You know, at this point, you know, the, the maids are stepping over him to, you know, get the rooms to clean and all this stuff. So, and it, you know, like I said, they're, they're just a fun-loving, totally authentic, great bunch of fun guys so you know we we became like just family again in no time and so now whenever whenever possible um i still 
love to go out and do tours with them because they're a brilliant live band. They make good records still, you know, and they're all just the nicest people you could hope. They to are meet. the lowest maintenance guys that I've ever worked with. And well, they're also, you know, they're, they're very self-sufficient. There's no one that really needs babysat, you know, so. Well, so currently you, you work with Sturgill Simpson, who's kind of a, a guitar god. Seems like a super cool cool gig to be on. How'd you get the Sturgill gig? The year that he won the Grammy for Sailor's Guide to Earth, he decided right after that that for the next tour that he was going to strip the band down to just be a four-piece band, and he was going to play all the guitar. Because up until then, he had just played mostly rhythm guitar and had you know a large band with a lead guitar player, who also played pedal steel and three horn players and, you know, all that. And when he decided he just wanted to just take everything down, be the only guitar player and it'd just be him, bass drums and a Hammond organ, uh, you know, just roots rock. And so he was really dissatisfied with previous sound guys. And um, so he, you know, just said uh, that he was looking, you know, to replace him. Well, his keyboard player, Bobby was also the keyboard player on the Shooter Jennings tours I'd done years before. And so he threw my name in the hat. And it was just one of those things where just by weird coincidences, um, uh, Sturgill's manager at the time knew a whole bunch of people that I know. And when he had called them and say, hey, Sturgill wants to get a new sound guy, who should we get? Like, Five or six people just immediately just said, Steve Smith, he's perfect. And and so, again, it was just a word of mouth. But it was also just kind of a weird coincidence that so many of the people he'd asked if they could recommend someone were people that knew me and had worked with me. That's how you get gigs. It is. It's just you got to – it's who you know. It's, you know, that's how people ask. Well, the, the good thing is – and the bad thing if you're, you know, don't have as many friends, <laughs> I guess, is that if – you know, like with, with Sturgill's manager, he immediately, when Sturgill said he wanted to find a, a new sound guy, uh, called people that he knew and trusted. And, and so, you know, just the fact that the majority of people that he'd asked, all, and, you know, their first recommendation was me. Yeah, man. So, uh, you know, we, we are lucky enough to get to travel all over the place. Um... You know, what are the coolest places you've ever gotten to visit? Well, I mean, Australia and New Zealand are amazing. Anytime I get to go to Europe, I'm thrilled to do it. I did a, a, a European tour in uh, January of this year. And we, you know, we went up to Copenhagen and we, we were in Berlin and, you know, London, Glasgow, Dublin, Amsterdam. And, you know, I love to travel. Um I love, you know, going to all the cool places here. And to, to be honest, some of my favorite places, unfortunately, are pretty seriously at risk. Um, my, my favorite thing with, with the punk bands and stuff like that was to go to all these epic, independent live music clubs that hold, you know, maybe a thousand people. You know, places like Slim's in San Francisco or the Metro in Chicago. The Black Cat in D.C. is a favorite. The Paradise in Boston. And unfortunately, the pandemic has, has pretty much, you know, forced all of those places to close. Well, you know, the good thing is, unless a developer buys the property and levels the place and puts in condos, 
most of those places, even if the owners have to bow out, somebody else is going to buy the building and promote comp. It'll still be a venue of some kind. So what are the coolest venues you've gotten to play? Well, really, they're... Some of them in the U.S., particularly the the most fun ones, are places like Red Rocks, you know, the, the amphitheaters and stuff like that. And you know, the the local crews at all those kind of places are great. Um, the Fox theaters are all you know epically nice places to play with great crews. You know, so that's what makes and breaks a venue. It's the crew usually. Well, yeah, when you when you get to a venue and everybody, all of the local crew and all of the audio and lighting and video staff and everybody, if they're smiling and ready to shake your hand and get on with it, then you know you know they're getting treated right, and you know it's going to be a good day. So what uh, what's some of the craziest things that have happened to you on tour that uh, you were able to tell publicly? <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, that um, keeping it, you know, um, rated G kind of thins <laughs> out the story <laughs> quite a bit. But but, but a whole lot of my favorite road stories, you know, from my whole career have kind of revolved around one theme, which is buses breaking down. And one of the most epic ones ever was when I was on tour with Shooter Jennings, we were going to play the independent in San Francisco. As we're coming in, we're going across the bridge and the bus had a air leak that the driver couldn't find and took it to a couple of different places and they couldn't totally get it fixed. They just put a bandaid on it and we'd look to the next truck stop basically. And anyway, as we were coming into town, we're late for the gig. We're already stressed and the air pressure gets low enough that the bus breaks lock up it's an emergency safety feature so we're locked up in the second to the far left lane going across the golden gate bridge at <laughs> rush hour on a friday so um in minutes we have a helicopter hovering above the bus with you know on megaphones going don't get out of the bus don't open the door, don't do anything, a wrecker's on the way. And so then, next thing you know, we're a you know, traffic hazard. And we've got <laughs> you, know, you know, police cars surrounding us with their lights on and directing traffic around and you know, totally just roadblocking one whole lane of a bridge on Friday at rush hour. You know. And so finally, the, the wrecker gets there. And we were so late that we just had the wrecker pull us to the gig. <laughs> That's so, great. <laughs> you know, arriving, arriving at a club instead of come rolling in as the, you know, total pros <laughs> that we are, we come limping in, being pulled by a wrecker to, you know, get dropped in front of this club and load in. So, <laughs> that's that's so, that, so great. <laughs> so, so that, you know, that, that's a pretty good one as well. You know, I'm, um, another favorite of mine goes back further um, to the, the late 90s when I worked with a Chicago band called Sonia Dada. Epic band, pretty big band and stuff. But they were kind of at the edge of being a hippie jam band, but they had much more of an R&B thing than most of them. But they were on Capricorn, and we played all the same kind of you know jam band festivals and all that stuff. But anyway, we were going from uh, Denver to California at some point after a gig. And um, 
we, you know, it's late at night. Most everybody had gone to bed. Um, the drummer was just one of those guys, like a lot of drummers, just loved to party, loved to drink, had a, you know, very tempestuous relationship with his girlfriend. So, of course, they argued a lot. So he, the bus, um, pull up to get fuel. Nobody gets off the bus. Driver goes in to, you know, go to the bathroom or, you know, shop for stuff or whatever. And so the drummer decides this would be a good time, because this was before cell phones, to go to the phone booth and call his girlfriend. So here he is, pretty seriously drunk, in his pajamas with flip-flops on. Um, and as he's talking on the phone, arguing with his girlfriend, he sees the bus pull away and get on the interstate. <laughs> and we're like in Nebraska or something. Only a couple of us were awake, and we had no idea he'd gotten off, and the driver had no idea anybody had gotten off. So we're cruising, and after about an hour down the road, the driver said, all of a sudden he's seeing you know flashing lights behind him in a state police car. So he pulls over and, you know, he's a little bit concerned because we're a hippie jam band. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, crap. You know, like I said, we're in, you know, middle of no place somewhere. Policeman comes up to the driver, to the driver window and says, I believe you've lost something. And the driver's <laughs> like, well, what do you mean? And so he goes back and gets the drummer who's still stumbling drunk and uh, walks him up, opens, you know, the passenger door and puts him on the bus and, Waves us on. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, you know, stuff like that. Nowadays, everybody's got cell phones, and it's a reasonably easy fix. You know, but back then it wasn't. And it was just, you know, when the bus stopped, we all woke up to see what was going on, and it was just hysterical. So. <laughs> That's awesome. I never got left, yeah. but I, I've chased a bus down like a like an on ramp, uh, <laughs> you know. Just, but oh, yeah. I, I've never been grease spotted myself. So, what advice do you have for people looking to get into the touring industry or even the audio industry uh, that you wish somebody might have told you before you started? Uh, you know, in my opinion, you know, obviously having you know a really good skill set is critical. Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of what field, you know what what aspect of it you're focusing on but um really how you conduct yourself you know at the show at the job site will you know will carry you far you know like you know always be a nice guy always be a team player always be graceful under pressure you know that that just it makes everybody's day easier mm -hmm. you know avoid drama you know, avoid throwing temper tantrums when you get a bad mic cable, you know, that, that kind of thing. And you'll, you know, you know, it, it, it just, it, your personality is really your most valuable asset in the long term. You know, you live in a bus with these people for a month. Uh, yeah, uh, or six months. Yeah, you know, right, so, so you got to get along with these people. And sometimes there's 10 or 12 people in the bus. You got to be a good hang, and there's there's always that guy. But I've never been in a situation where it's just been so bad that not everybody could get along. But especially in a crew situation, you, you got to be if you're an asshole when you get to the gig and are freaking out about stupid stuff. Well, I mean, I've I've worked with other audio guys and you know a few lighting guys as well that are perfectly competent at their jobs, but 
they just are so much of a pain to deal with that, you know, you know, just the fact that they're always ready to argue, always ready to complain, you know, always looking for the, the bad side, the worst thing about everything. And, you know, that, that'll get you sent home faster than fucking up. Yeah. You know? So anyway, a, you know, positive mental attitude and a strong work, work ethic. And, you know, basically it's all, it doesn't create opportunity, but it makes you better able to take the best advantage to anything that might pop up. Mm-hmm. We've both been in that situation. You know, you get to a club that's not all that good. It's, you know, you want to... You want to be mad. You want to say, "Hey, why is this messed up?" But it's not gonna, it's not gonna help the situation. And you're you're gonna get better at what you do if you figure out how to make a a shitty PA system sound really good. Because it's not that hard to make a an L acoustics or a D and B rig sound good. It's difficult to get the trashy PA system in the venue working for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's learning. You know, learn how to take a ratty old poorly maintained club system and make it rock means that when you do get your hands on a really nice PA, you can just relax. You can just go, ah, you know? Well, Steve, thank you so much, man. It was a, it's great talking to you. Hopefully things start getting back to normal soon. Thank you very much. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to Bus Call. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit us at patreon.com slash buscall. Patreon members will get the podcast a week before it's released to the public, and they can also sign up to have advance notice of who's going to be on and the opportunity to ask questions. Please take some time to visit show-logistics.com. We've dedicated the first page to sell merch to raise money for Crew Nation's Global Relief Fund. As you know, with COVID-19, basically all touring has stopped for the foreseeable future, and there's thousands and thousands of crew out of work, and we're donating all the profits many of the merch sold there straight to Crew Nation. Thanks so much again, and please rate, review, and subscribe.